from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 55, recorded October the 19th, 2023, and it's brought to you by Memberful. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell, and with me as always, someone who can't drive 55. It's Julia Alexander, Director of Strategy at, Pat- at Parrot Analytics, easy for me to say. Julia, number 55, here we are. Number 55. Wow. That's crazy. We're old enough to live in my mother's housing development. (laughs) I love this. We'll just do an episode when we hit 60. That's like all the things we can do at 60. Yeah, sure. I mean, why not? I love that. Why not? Yeah. What does that have to do with streaming? I bet 60-year-olds watch a lot of television. I think they they do, but probably not streaming. It's mostly just linear for them. That's true. I think for the most part, if the... If, if the ratings are any indication, um, this is a this can be a, a nice show. It is uh, because it is an odd episode. Uh, everybody gets to hear the whole thing. But remember, uh, if you want to support us and also listen to the full versions of our even episodes, uh, you go to downstream plus. That's all. And you uh, you can do all those things. You get all those things and more. Um, but let's just get right into it, because uh, I want to start with Netflix. Mm-hmm. Results came out up nine million subscribers. That's good. Um, big earnings. It's yeah. big, yeah. Uh, and they're raising the price. Yeah, to twenty of their of their premium offer, which is their four K, like four viewers at once. The the high end ad free uh, version of Netflix going up again to twenty two ninety nine a month, which is a lot. I would say a, a lot. It, it, I and I definitely seem to feel like this is the one that's really hitting home with people that um that Netflix really doesn't Netflix wants you to see ads. And we're going to I want to talk about it Netflix and ads in a little bit because you wrote a piece about it. But like just raising the price like that like Oof, remember when people were going to save money? I mean, this is never actually true, but save money by cutting the cord is like mm, is Netflix like the cable company now? Is that what they are? I feel like ever since Netflix brought in the advertising and brought in the password sharing crackdown. This is the position they were trying to get to. Mm. There is an element of this, which is let's stretch the delta between our lowest price service and a more expensive price service to accomplish a few things. One is to kind of move that lower price service directly into the ad spectrum. So that way we are pushing more newcomers as well as potential um, cancellation customers where, 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 there, where the, there's that risk of higher canceling. Let's move them to that lower price tier because it's really cheap. We're not touching it. And I think that's really important from this aspect. They are not touching in the US and Canada and um, the UK that lower ad supported tier at all. Right. And then let's do two other things. We're not going to touch the main ad free tier. So that's that uh, standard $15, $49 tier. That also hasn't been touched. But what we are going to do is really push that delta on the premium. And when we think about this, you know, the vast majority of subscribers, when we look at the Netflix tiers, many of the basic uh, tier subscribers, they're they're getting rid of that basic tier. And we're seeing them kind of move over to the ad supported tier as it gets more expensive on the on the premium side. What you're going to see a lot happen. We're going to see a lot of happen is effectively those customers deciding we love Netflix, but not this much. So we're going to go down to, go down to this fifteen forty nine tier, um, especially as they kick in password sharing, crack down stuff. Or we are diehard Netflix fans. This is our go to streaming service, and we're willing to pay thirty thirty five dollars for access to this. What I think you'll also see happening, based on a lot of the conversations I have with some friends in the industry, is that eventually Netflix is going to have to fragment that audience even more, and so. It actually feels reminiscent of 
what Peacock did when it kind of first came out. But the idea that Netflix will explore fast, a free ad supported television mm. structure feels pretty obvious with some of their originals, maybe a few episodes of each original. You can kind of go in and watch it and that's free. Um, then they'll have their standard tier and their ad supported tier, which has access to everything that's currently available. And then you have a premium tier which might include additional games it might include tickets to some of the immersive experiences they're doing it might include um aspects of sports as mm -hmm. they get more involved with yeah. sports right all of this idea of how do we really make that 30 35 tier worth it for the group of subscribers who are willing to commit to it and pay that higher level of arpu to us um, or bring in that level the higher level of arpu but really the goal is to kind of create a basic tier and a standard tier where they're going to generate the most significant amount of revenue from the highest level of mass when you look at the the, the the consumer potential and then have that premium tier for those super fans. But you, you will see, I suspect, some form of content um, construct, constriction as well as some content expansion and experience expansion come in as they continue to increase some of these prices. Yeah, I, I just speaking for my myself and my family, we went down from the high quality plan to the the mid-range plan that's no ads, but not the 4K or anything like that. Uh, I think last year or earlier this year, as this was all going on, because I, I, you know, it was already I thought not worth it, and now it's going to be even more not worth it. So yeah, you really do need to be a a super fan and a power user of Netflix, I think, to to go or or not care that it's twenty three dollars a month because you've got enough money that it it, it doesn't matter to you. Whatever your proposition is there, um, but I it, it, I got to be honest, and I'm going to be um, this episode. I'm going to be down on some of the attempts mm -hmm. by uh, streamers to raise their prices because I think we have to get in. We, we are now entering an era and I'd be interested to know if you think this too. I feel like we're in an era now where the streamers actually need to justify themselves at a yeah. level that they have not up to this point, because the problem with raising prices is you are basically challenging your customers to uh, determine whether you have value and enough value or not. And when I look at Netflix, I got to be honest, uh, number one reason I still have Netflix is I know that if um, if I canceled it, my daughter would be very mad at me. And the truth is, <laughs> given the password sharing stuff and that she she doesn't live with us because she just graduated from college, um, they're, they're not going to want her to be on our plan anyway. And I, I, I kind of see where this is going, which is she's probably going to end up on the ad plan and we may end up on the ad plan or nowhere with Netflix that, that because mm -hmm. I don't get enough value out of Netflix. I just don't. There are a handful of shows that I watch, but it's not at the top of mind. And I feel like if that's the case, we're, we're now in an era where it's like you don't keep something around for one or two shows. You just you can't because the, especially as the prices creep up. Yes, I mean, that's exactly it. And I think what we're seeing, if we look at the kind of if we do some brief market landscape analysis, a really interesting play that we've talked about on the show, it comes from Warner Brothers Discovery, right? And what they're doing with their sports tier, yeah. which is effectively subsidizing the general entertainment audience, which is the in the inverse of what happened within with PTV, where the uh, sports made everything much more expensive for those who didn't want sports because you had to have a bunch, you have to pay for a bunch of it in order to kind of access some of the other channels. And the interesting play from Warner Brothers Discovery is this idea of how much value do I get if I'm a baseball or I'm a basketball or I'm a hockey fan? I pay for access to to that sports. I get everything else included with that, including CNN, um, including the programming from HBO, including some of the new originals coming out, Warner Brothers films at 
you know, let's say that that's $25 a month currently, once they start um, charging for that $10 tier for sports, $25 a month is only a few dollars more expensive than the premium tier for Netflix. Yep. It's only $10 more a month than what you get on the standard tier for Netflix. And arguably, if you are a much more general consumer who wants sports, who wants news, who wants access to some form of entertainment, including film and television, it's become a much more valuable prospect if you're looking for a main streaming service compared to a Netflix, compared to a Disney Plus pre-Hulu bundling and ESPN potential bundling. And so I think you'll see a few things happen. One is this bundling of different streaming platforms that are owned by companies. So you saw it with Showtime, uh, Paramount Plus. Uh, more importantly, I think you'll see it with uh, sports, news, and general entertainment to really create those mini um, cable bundles effectively, but mm-hmm. really find ways to kind of to bring over some of that audience and make them a primary home and make it a habitual experience. So that way, when you're looking to cancel, they are not one of the services that you do cancel. But I also think, again, this is where we're getting into with how do you make those price increases feel like more than just a money grab? And to Jason's point, there's a lot of Wall Street analysts right now after Netflix's earnings who are saying like, hey, this is a really strong quarter. We're really happy to see Netflix kind of on this rebound. But also this idea of the only way to increase your revenue is to increase prices and expect little churn because historically there has been little churn. So there's no real data to suggest that Netflix will see an influx of churn. Also kind of contradicts that there is an increasing level of churn amongst the entire industry. And up until this moment, it was a more apples to apples comparison for a lot of these services. It was general entertainment or it was like niche entertainment, but it was the idea that you could kind of go back and forth as you bring in sports, as you bring in, you know, Disney looking at the idea of maybe discounting Disneyland tickets, which are more expensive now, like whatever it might be, all of a sudden the perks that you get out of a Netflix subscription, which is the pure content play, if it's some of your favorite programming, but not all of it, and you can actually move over to some of these other platforms, you're likely going to see that churn increase on Netflix. And so then it becomes, okay, well, how do we sweeten the deal for some of our standard uh, without ads potentially standard uh, uh, with ads, I believe that's out there, and then the premium tier um, as we bring in more people to this ad-supported tier, which is going to generate stronger average revenue per member anyways, but we also don't want to lose these customers and we don't want to lose out on these premium plan um, average revenue per member uh, fees that are coming in because they're they're really great. And that's what's really complicated for Netflix. If we think about them, they haven't had strong breakout franchises. Jason and I talk about this all the time. They have a lot of fans for some of their shows, but they haven't done much beyond the content of those shows, of those seasons. And those seasons come to an end relatively quick on Netflix since, you know, Stranger Things is about to end soon. And they've got a ton of things in the pipeline for Stranger Things expansion, but nothing's really taken off. And so I think there is this general concern. We're kind of seeing it happen with Disney, right? This this idea that the Star Wars and Marvel audience is stagnant and at best constricting at worst. They haven't really found a new franchise. Universal and Illumination have owned all the new kids franchises coming out of it. And they've kind of brought those into theme parks and through the merchandise expansion. And they have it on Peacock. They have it in theaters. Um, they have it on YouTube. And so I think if you're Disney, there's also this idea of like, well, how do we ensure that we have this content that leads into our other experiences to really make sure we give fans this all-encompassing almost season pass to all of our content that we really want them to enjoy and netflix feels the less like uh less likely equipped to be able to pull this off but also i think it's something they're clearly thinking about based on some of the innovations that they're taking on and it'll just be a question of whether or not they can pull it off before these other offerings get much much uh more uh um, exciting for a lot of consumers at a relatively similar price 
Now, you mentioned um, Max and their sports tier, which they're going to charge extra for, although right now it's a free preview, but it's going to be $10 a month add-on to Max. Um, I, I have This is a weird question that I wasn't thinking before we started, but I want to ask you based on what you just said, which is, do you envision when we talk about segmenting um and maybe even offering sort of different levels of membership right now what netflix is doing is saying look you pay for netflix you get more or less all of netflix they had a few things that weren't in the ad tier but i think the goal is for it to not be the case that it's the same service across all and the difference is you get ads down here um here you don't get ads and up here you get uh 4k and you know it's it's this whole kind of special quality kind of level but the, the catalog's the catalog would netflix segment by content and you mentioned fast the idea that maybe they segment by content going downward and say some of our content you don't even have to pay for you could just get it with ads what about the other way do, is there a scenario where where netflix might actually say you know what we really ought to do is create a new tier <laughs> that you have to pay for uh, like what Max is doing with sports is that it, it doesn't seem very Netflixy to do that, but I, I'm curious what you think about the pos the possibility that Netflix might differentiate more based on you know on content at different levels. Yeah, you know it's such an interesting question, and I mean it kind of sounds Jason like you think they would. I don't. No, I don't. It, it doesn't. It doesn't feel Netflixy at, at all. But right. then again, doing an ad tier didn't feel Netflixy, and they did it. Right. So I, I feel like we need to at least consider it. The reason I, I mentioned this actually was not about Netflix. I was going to ask you a side question, which is: Do you think there will come a day when Max will have you in a great tradition that has only recently left us pay extra for HBO? Right. The idea of saying, mm. imagine that. I mean, and I know that's a wild idea, but like, imagine if Max all of a sudden said, you know what? It, $10 for Bleacher Report, also $10 for HBO. Otherwise, you just get, you know, Dr. Pimple Popper, which is great. And some of our, you know, get the Batman movies. Uh, but if you want the, the quality of HBO, it's like cable. You got to pay extra for it. That, that's a wild idea. But like, that's one way to get more money, or at least to try to get more money, is to, rebuild a a content bundle inside your streaming service, right? Yeah, I don't think it's a wild idea. And you said exactly. I I'm hope glad David Saslav's not listening because I, I, I'm sure he's thought of it. <laughs> no, but I, I was going to say after 55 episodes, I feel like you and I are on the same um, wavelength. Mm. I was going to say it's really difficult to say anything that Netflix will or will not do because to your exact <laughs> right? point, they didn't weren't going to do ads. They weren't going to. And now they're doing it. And there is maybe a world in which Netflix says you have access to the first season of the show, but to get the second season. The only reason I, I say it doesn't feel too much like Netflix and I can't see them doing it is because I think it's easier for them with their scale to generate significant ad spend at a high level of CPM, right. kind of that $65 and bringing it to the full base. So if you look at a fast idea, you have, let's say you know, 200, 300 million people coming to this kind of fast tier who are not subscribed to Netflix, who don't want to pay for Netflix, but they want, they want access to some shows. That reach then puts you, and that's, by the way, a huge reach. Netflix just reached, what, 250, I think, or 260. Like, they just hit that with paid. But the idea that it probably expands as there's free options um, because it's free. And so to put that in context, Pluto, I think, has about 70 or 80 million active users. So so th th this is a huge projection. I'm saying this would be like years in the making, but let's say that they, they kind of hit that. 
200, 300 million, like that puts you in the same level as broadcast at that point um, in terms of homes reached. And from an advertising standpoint, Netflix is also a much stronger potential because of the fact that it can be highly targeted, because of the fact that it is streaming, it's a younger audience, um, it, they typically have more disposable income, according to some studies that have just come out recently. And so it's a really great win for, um, and also Netflix has these these high uh, cultural zeitgeist shows. And so it's a great win for the advertisers. So I think for Netflix, it's it's a little bit easier and it's much more in line with their brand. And I think it makes more sense in general to welcome a new body of uh, of viewers and Mm -hmm. to kind of feed those viewers and really lean into the ad component of it, ideally trying to upgrade them to the ad-supported tier, that kind of $7 fee in order to get them to watch, then saying like, we're going to take some content and we're not going to put it here because I think it gets to a point where the sentiment around Netflix is already so low that a, a decrease in that sentiment will further churn more than anything else. And to your point about HBO, the only reason that I can't see them doing it, because I think you're right, I'm sure they've thought about that, is that HBO is still, you know, relatively niche in, in many ways, but it is kind of the core foundational argument for why so many people have it. Yeah. So I think if you were to say, hey, this is on its own, I think you get a lot of people who are kind of like, I don't know if I need access to all of Max, if I can just get HBO. And if there's the idea that I have to pay $25 to get all this programming plus HBO, you know, you'd probably, I mean, I guess at that point, you'd probably have the HBO audience, right? So you'd probably have what, 30, 40 million subscribers uh, who would say like, sure, I'm willing to do that. But because it's easier to cancel, I think you'd run into the HBO Now issue of much, much higher churn. And that LTV, if you look at the lifetime value calculation with that level of churn, because you have pure HBO subscribers, that gets really difficult to then plan the rest of your pricing power around, to plan the rest of your content investment around. And so- I can't see it happening, especially if Warner Brothers Discovery kind of consolidates and and merges in some capacity with the Comcast. I think HBO becomes a very big tether um, that you want to make sure is accessible to a lot of people because of that potential churn, because the lack of annual lock-in, because of all these other issues that we really see. Um, And I think sports, I think the way WBD is going about this is actually the way I would probably do it, even though it's counterintuitive to what a lot of other companies would say. But I think sports, because it's such high value, and because it's such a dedicated audience, using them to kind of subsidize the rest of the entertainment, the general entertainment audience, where there's much more competition out there, makes more sense to me. Um, but again, as we've seen this, as, as Jason, you said perfectly, like I would have said, you know, five, six years ago, Netflix would have said we're never doing ads. They did say we're never doing ads. Yeah. And now they're doing it. So nothing yeah. is out of out of the the equation. Yeah, anything is possible. I, I think my only thought about about Max and HBO is if they came to believe that they were so high on Max as a product, as a base product, that they felt like they could segment something like HBO and get more money out of people thinking that, you know, but you're right. What they've done is say, we're going to put HBO in this thing and that gives it its value. And that there's this other stuff too, but we're like HBO is one of the big reasons people have Max. And if we, if we do effectively a $10 increase in the the cost of Max or six or seven and by putting HBO behind it, we're, you know, does that devalue Max and make us less money than if we did it? I just, I, it makes me wonder. It gives me pause about Netflix. You're right. I started to think about like, well, what about sports? And the answer is, but really what you want to do is have uh, as many eyes on sports as possible so that you can sell ads into it. 
it, especially because as a live thing, ads are pretty strong in sports. Right. Uh, and so so it's actually a better way to go. And the best I could come up with just sitting here is something like if Netflix made a deal with a studio or something where there was like they were they would basically take the the um the pay window of, uh, of a bunch of movies and have it instead be in a Netflix branded kind of like thing that was the, the movie add on to Netflix or something like that, where you, you get the newest releases that just came out of the theaters and Netflix get gets them, but only if you're in the magic Netflix club or whatever, but like, right. it, it doesn't feel like it's as good a fit as something like, putting content down in a fast service so that you're ramping people up from we don't pay Netflix anything and we see some Netflix content to we pay them a little bit and we see that content still with ads to we pay them a yeah. little more and we see it without ads to we pay them even more and now we're super fans and we get it in 4k HDR that feels more like the right strategy there but I, I wonder right I mean it, make, it gives me pause because never say never no, yeah. And I think two quick points on that. Um, I, the lessons that I've learned from studying fast is, and I think this is really important, is that you can't expect that audience to convert. Um, and so in my studying uh, of kind of Pluto, of Tubi, of a lot of these other ones, Pluto being the most obvious because it's really connected to Paramount Plus, uh, that idea of like they use this as a baseline to get people in the door Maybe like you probably get some conversion to your point, Jason, like they're the ones who convert to that ad supported tier. So it works out well anyways. But the vast majority of people who are using fast are really using it as like an occurrence based. I need I have 15 minutes to kill. I don't want to look for mm. anything. There's a, always a Star Trek on. I'll just throw that on. Um, and it's really hard to convert that audience per se. But the other question that really ties into this, and I think this will be a really important lesson for a lot of these companies figuring out how they want to set up these these bundles, effectively their own internal bundles, but the but bundles for consumers, is what are the numbers? I know Antenna, a great research firm, put out some numbers on, on overall signups. What are the numbers on the amount of Sunday ticket fans on YouTube TV who now have YouTube TV? versus right. how many of them came in through the channel service, which is not YouTube TV and, and, and Google, please, please, I'm begging for better names. Mm. But how many people came through the channel system will cancel it once they're done, right? They're kind of like, I don't need this anymore. Like I got my Sunday ticket, did what yep. it needs to do, versus how many have then taken up YouTube TV and said, this is really great um, ability for me to have live news and other live programming and other access to ESPN and, and some some live sports that are not just Sunday ticket. And those lessons if we ever get those numbers, and I'm asking great journalists like Lucas Shaw at Bloomberg and Matt Bellany at Puck and Joe Adalian at uh, Vulture and Joe Flynn at Wall Street Journal, I'm asking them to find out like what are those numbers because that will be very instructive to, I think, how a lot of companies like Disney, like Warner Brothers Discovery, think about the fact that they can pull some of those sports off of cable, throw it into a tier and get a separate pay tier. But I think there's a very specific reason that WBD is saying you can get the sports tier at max, but you have to have max, right? Like, it's not like you can just get sports right. for $15 a month. It is now like, oh, you have to have this whole package. And I think that's very different from what YouTube TV is doing for obvious reasons, the big one being price um, and getting people within there. But I, I think there's a lot of data that has not come out yet from a lot of these different tactics that I'm excited to see if and we do get them out. 
And I mean, for those who are wondering, why are we saying, oh, well, it makes sense that Max is adding Bleacher Report as a $10 add-on, but we're also saying it doesn't make sense that Netflix would do it. Part of that is that Warner Brothers Discovery has cable channels, which means they're getting a lot of money from TBS and TNT on linear. And so what the Bleacher Report add-on to Max really is, is an alternate pathway for people who don't have cable for them to charge them just to get their sports. So they're getting it in both ways. And Netflix wouldn't do that, right? Like Netflix is, I, I it doesn't have a linear anything. And I don't think probably would ever have something like that. And I think that that changes the equation, at least in the short term. Well, and I think too, 100%. And I also think that if we were talking about live sports on Netflix, it'd be a different conversation. I think there is an inherent understanding from consumers that sports is like, I will pay, I will pay extra for it because they also to your point, Jason, they've already been doing it on cable. Right. There's this idea of like, sure. oh, well, like I already pay extra for sports. You've got um, never what are they call cord nevers who have never had cable, right. who kind of understand that there is an inherent premium to having sports content who are willing to pay for it. So I think if Netflix bid on like the NBA rights, if they bid on like the MLB, I think if there was an active like we are going to bid heavily on some very expensive rights and we're going to bring that exclusively to our platform, I would not be surprised if Netflix was like, hey, this is going to cost you if you want it an extra like $10, $15 because there's an understanding that like this is a premium hmm. product. I think if if it's this idea of like Netflix should have a separate tier purely for content that's like general entertainment that gets really tricky because it's like, well, how is this different from right. what you how have do, how been do we doing? Differentiate? I don't know. I, yeah. What gives me pause is that one of the values in having the sports is to have ads on it. And yes. you, if you charge uh, just a premium for it, you do, especially with something that's got a heavy ad load, you are losing some of that, but you are making some money. It depends on how you pencil it out in terms of, is it more valuable for me to put this on every Netflix subscriber's account? Because that's going to get us a number that's going to allow us to sell ads at this level. And it's more money that way than if we charge $10, it's a gate. And then we still sell ads, but it's to a smaller number. That's the... I think that's the question. Um, although I've seen, you know, like what Apple is doing with MLS and, and, and is kind of instructive here in the sense that, you know, it's a it's it's not a uh, everything behind a wall scenario. It's like some stuff is behind a wall, but some stuff is in front of it. Um, so that's presumably if if the NBA was on Netflix, that's how it would work: is that there would be select games, a game of the week or whatever, would be available for everybody to see. But uh, if you want everything, you got to go behind. The the wall it's possible again it doesn't right. feel super netflixy to me but it's a it's one scenario where i could at least imagine it happening yeah time to take a break for our sponsor this episode of downstream is brought to you by memberful hey i know those guys uh, running a business can be hard. You're in charge of so many things, including looking ahead to make sure the business remains profitable long term. One way to diversify your revenue stream is to introduce a membership program like Downstream Plus, and Memberful can help you do it. It has everything you need to run a membership program, including a streamlined and powerful checkout, an easy-to-use member portal, transactional emails, and a member management dashboard. I use Memberful. We use it here at Relay FM. I use it for the incomparable. I use it for six colors. It is the way that I make a large portion of my living as an independent content creator. And it has been such a huge help. They keep adding new features. They're so valuable. Um, they're very helpful when I need support. It's just... 
you know, the idea when I went out on my own, I was hoping to make money at uh, advertising in podcasts and on a website. I wasn't really thinking about membership at all. There came that moment where I realized I needed to go down that path. And I, I regret not having done it sooner because it could not have been easier to get it together with Memberful. And it has become an important, vitally important part of my livelihood. Memberful lets you build the membership that's best suited to your audience. You can have custom branding, newsletters, check, podcasts, check, gift subscriptions, yes, Apple Pay, free and paid trials, automatic referral discounts, and a lot more. So many features. And there are analytics to give you an easy to use in-depth view of what's working, what's not, and where to double down. Memberful seamlessly integrates with tools you already use, including MailChimp, WordPress, Stripe, Discord, and many more. And if you need them, you can contact their world-class support team. I told you, they're really great and very helpful. They're ready to help you simplify your memberships and grow your revenue. They're passionate about your success, and you'll always have access to a real human being. They're very nice human beings. I've talked to many of them. Go and check it out right now to see if it could work for you like it works for me, you can get started with no credit card required at memberful.com slash downstream could be the next great step for you and your business memberful.com slash downstream. Thank you to memberful for supporting downstream. I wanted to uh, shift gears slightly, but I actually moved this up in our show document because I feel like we're rolling right into the same conversation talking about value proposition, Disney plus, um, you know, Disney continues to raise its own rates mm -hmm. as well. Um, it, it is not, a, it is not a cheap service and they have bundled, you know, you can save some money or you feel like you're saving money by spending money. But if you, if you find value in Hulu, if you find value in ESPN plus, um, but I, I was thinking about the core Disney plus value proposition. Cause remember they came out aggressive, uh, obviously wasn't going to stay at $6. They were doing their best to try and acquire and they did, but now they keep raising the rates. And this is uh, far be it for me to tell a company that they shouldn't try to make money. But I, I, I know we've talked about this a little bit, but I, I honestly, <laughs> I gotta say it. I just don't see it. I just don't see the value in Disney plus in the U S as a standalone product. It's got the Disney vault, so I guess it's got a lot of movies. So if you're a parent of young kids who love Disney movies and you want them on demand rather than just having bought them and having them, you know, on DVD or whatever or on, on iTunes, uh, wherever you bought them digitally or physically. Um, but you look at what's driving it. You look at the recent ratings. I know there was a tweet that was out there that you commented on that I, I saw, which is basically like, what are the top streamers for the week and it's like there's like a marvel show if it's in season or a disney a one episode of a marvel or star wars show but that's about it and then there's a huge fall off and i'm kind of i i wanted to throw it in here because i my feelings have been resolved in the last few months that i just don't see the value in Disney plus right now. I feel like they built this thing on their archive and on essentially like a Marvel or star Wars show will be around most of the time at some point. And those shows quality has been an issue with a lot of them. I want to talk about Marvel TV in a little while, but um, it's, and what's ironic is Hulu. I don't feel that way about it at all. Hulu. I get, immense value. And I think I watch more things on Hulu than anywhere else. Honestly. Yeah. I really yeah. think that's the case. And yet in the U S at least Hulu's over here, Disney plus is over there. And 
I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether they're, they're just too confident in the catalog um, and the fact that Marvel and Star Wars are big names, but it's not like there's a lot of Marvel and Star Wars content either. And I know you and I've talked about this in the past. Where is the rest of it? Where are the rest of the must watch Disney originals? And there are very few and that exist at all. And none of them are must watch. So you're left with these scraps from Marvel and Star Wars that may be hit or miss. And like, I don't know if I were analyzing Disney at this point, I would say you guys have a real problem in the U S having Disney plus be a standalone product. And I know they're trying to push the bundle with Hulu. Hulu is adding ironically, the non Disney brand is the one that's adding all of the weight to the bundle. And Disney is just barely uh, skimping by. If that, I, I just, and meanwhile, Netflix is raising their rates. And then you look at Disney, you're like, but what does Disney even have? What does it have? Well, this this is the issue that has always existed with Disney Plus's marketing, if that, but also the idea around Disney Plus. And this is not on the fault of consumers. This is, but this has always been my issue with it. Disney Plus is a niche service. It is not a general entertainment service. It is a few verticals mm. and then the vault. So who is, and this is why it gets conflated, because we're saying who is that niche? Families, which is mainstream. But yeah, it's families with kids under 12. It's a very specific audience. Mm -hmm. And then it is a, Mar and then it's Marvel and Star Wars. That, that's basically it. The yeah. Nat Geo stuff doesn't do anything. The new shows have not done anything. And what I want to compare Disney Plus to really quickly is Nickelodeon. And the reason I think about Disney and Nickelodeon is this. It, it, between 1994, or 1995 and 2012, 2013, Nickelodeon and Disney were high value, high profit networks, uh, Disney Channel, were high value, high profit networks within cable. There was a plethora of new shows coming out that people absolutely adore. There was kids content that kids were focused on. What happened since then? We talked about some of the show a lot. You know, YouTube comes into play. Kids' attention is now going to YouTube. Netflix gets stuff like Cocomelon, also from YouTube. So preschoolers are watching that. The wildest moment from an earnings call in recent Disney memory was like two years ago at this point when Bob Chapek said, we are losing the preschool game. And I was like, you have Mickey Mouse. How is that <laughs> possible? But it's really key to what I'm, I'm going to say. Disney Plus niche service. And so it is being held to standards because the way that Disney has propositioned itself with the service as a Netflix, when in reality, Hulu was always going to be the Netflix for Disney. And the issue with Hulu not expanding globally, in part because of the issue with NBC Universal and the value that they want to not create for Hulu effectively <laughs> until that deal goes through. But a big part of that issue is like, yeah, Disney was never going to deliver on the type of content that Hulu was. Now, what Disney should have done and what they've started to do now is say, like, let's bring some of that Hulu content that we own, typically from ABC, make it ex non-exclusive on Hulu and Disney Plus. It's the same company. Um, You're seeing it happen with, like, new originals like Goosebumps as well, where Goosebumps is on both. And so there's this idea of, like, let's create a, straight, a stronger connection between the two for our bundle subscribers. And as we bring Hulu and Disney Plus into one unified app in whatever capacity that will look like come December, January, um, let's really leverage this idea that they can exist within one another to fulfill all those needs. The problem is that because they were constricted by this idea of what Disney Plus had to be, right? This kind of old IP that they were leaning into, this idea that it was always family friendly, this idea that 
in order to make it feel like there was new content coming out on top of the vault, they really had to lean in producing a, a number of Star Wars and Marvel shows that directly impacted the quality, which Jason was talking about, the quality of the brand and and took down brand sentiment, which affects the theatricality of these films in a lot of way of, of the franchise. You get to a point where Disney Plus, especially as it's not profitable, uh, is actually arguably done more harm to some of these franchises than good. Mm. Now. What does that say about Disney Plus? Is Disney Plus over? Not by any means. Uh, because, when again, I said this is niche, but also it's for families with kids under 12, 13. That's not niche. That's huge. It's a massive, massive, massive audience of people who say, I will have Disney because my kids want it and I like the old movies and I'm going to watch it. You also have 150, maybe 200 million Star Wars fans globally, maybe a little more, who are willing to pay for access to all these different shows. They'll pay no matter what because for them, five Star Wars shows is great. Five Marvel shows is fantastic. The problem is that the growth of Disney Plus stagnates. It gets to a point where you've kind of hit everyone you're going to hit as a niche service versus what we see with Netflix is not necessarily that growth has completely dropped off because people don't necessarily want it. There is an audience that they've got to cater their their programming towards, but Netflix is a general entertainment audience, so they can do that. Sports, right, is an area where they could really invest and there's an audience there. So it's not necessarily that they've reached the pinnacle of of their niche programming versus Disney arguably has. There is a no material difference between having two Star Wars shows a year or seven Star Wars shows a year. The only difference is wasting a billion dollars. And so I think with Disney Plus... We really need to, and this is not only consumers, I'm speaking more as an analyst here, we really need to bring down this idea of what Disney Plus is expected to do. And then for consumers, to Jason's point, I think it's really difficult to say, you know, you need to pay more when you're like, but I don't feel like I've been getting much more out of my service. I've been getting right. exactly what I was getting out of it in, in, on November 12, 2019. The problem with Disney was they went, and this was not their. This is not their fault. It was is an industry wide fault. Every many people would have done the exact same. They priced it way too low because they had to be competitive to Netflix. They'd be competitive to others. So they came in and said, "We're going to be seven dollars without ads." When that service could have launched for fifteen dollars without ads and really generated the same level of of subscriber momentum and subscriber growth, but with far more revenue coming in per those subscribers, it could have launched with ads. But they didn't because they were following the the, the competition in the landscape that was Netflix, and so they had to keep it at a certain price. They had to do it without ads, and now that Netflix is changing, the rest of them can kind of feel like they can change. Um, and so, but it's for Disney, it is like we're getting back to where we should have been. But for consumers who, who to Jason's point, have said, I don't feel like I'm getting much more out of this than I was two years ago. Now I'm paying three times as much and that doesn't make much sense to me. And I'm not really using the app as much anymore because I don't care about the new Star Wars show. Like I'm not an Ahsoka fan or I don't care about She-Hulk or whatever it is. All of a sudden, there's that higher risk of churn even amongst that core audience. And so that's really where Disney needs Hulu in a lot of ways and and kind of is figuring out how to massage that messaging of like, hey, we probably should have priced it at this point to begin with. And that's not on you, the consumer, but this is where we have to go with our business. And that's where I think you'll see Disney pull in other aspects. You know, here's a discounted park ticket, whatever it might be. You know, here's discounted merch because we're Disney and we know you're massive fans of our franchises. But it is a rough position for Disney. I, I, I don't think they're in immense trouble in terms of like their long-term success. I, th- I think long-term they'll be fine. But really sorting out that streaming strategy while also not giving up on the very lucrative linear revenue that is still coming in, figuring out how to navigate that is going to make for a very complicated and confusing um, consumer corralling in a lot of ways. 
Well, I, I, I keep bringing it back to Hulu because I know that in the rest of the world, a, a lot of what we think of as Hulu content in the U.S. is just on Disney Plus, And it feels like a more complete service there. But in the U.S., we are left with this very weird thing where, I mean, I'm paying for the bundle, so I'm getting them both. But the Disney part of the bundle doesn't feel like it's carrying the load. And maybe uh, to your point, that's an expectation setting thing on their part. Although I, I will point out, you know, they've, they did some things in those early days like uh, like Hamilton, right, where it felt like they were trying to program a little bit more broadly on Disney Plus. And I don't know how much of that they feel constrained by the Disney brand. Uh, obviously, the rest of the world, it doesn't matter. Uh, I don't I don't know how much of that is them trying to stick to their very specific, you know, brand tiles that they've already got. But it, it is it does sort of feel like there was an opportunity over the last three years to experiment with some other kinds of Disney plus content, a new series on Disney plus about whatever. And I know they're going to have Dr. Who now. So that's an actually interesting deal. That's a different franchise that they're going to put in Disney plus, And it's got family appeal. It's to adults and kids. Cause it's a family show in the UK. There's some stuff there, but like, it's just, I wonder how much of it is just the fact that in the U S we have to almost like look at Disney plus and Hulu like we've got a little divider right between our eyes, you know, the left eye sees Disney, the right eye sees Hulu and the rest of the world. That's not the case because if I sum them, if I, if I look at the cost of the Disney plus and Hulu bundle, which is not unreasonable. And I look at all the content that's together in both. It's actually pretty good because like I said, Hulu has been pretty strong. I just, there are moments where I look at Disney plus and I, I'm a little bit baffled I don't know. You you say it's a niche service and you're right, but there are moments when I look at it and I think, I don't know if they're putting enough effort into generating original content for Disney+. Plus. It feels like they're sort of like willing to throw a Marvel and a Star Wars and they got their they got their Disney movies, but there's not a lot. I know that there's like a Pixar series in, in production. There, there's some stuff, but like, I don't know. It, it just, maybe it's just that it's split and that, that a lot of the content is, is going to Hulu and instead but uh hulu just it's funny because that's like almost a dead man walking a lot in a lot of ways as we talk about it because of the mysteries of where it's going to go and how it's who's going to own it and all of that and yet boy i watch a lot of stuff on hulu is the bottom line right and then and mm -hmm. on disney plus i'm left with whatever t you know today's marvel show is and and last week's star wars show that's it mm -hmm. yeah i hear you yeah i don't know i don't know i'm just a little grumpy that's all Hulu's got it. Where's, where's the Disney Plus? Just a stuff? little grumpy. Just a little grumpy. All right, let's move on. Um, I have a... So I, I used to work in magazines back in the day. Uh, and, you know, we had subscribers, but we also sold ads. And this was like a whole, you know, you have that mixed business model that it's very familiar that we've got now in streaming. I'm very familiar with that from the past. But I'll tell you, in my particular, you know, tech media market, one of the challenges we had was, uh, you know, advertising essentially fleeing from print to online. And our challenge was to to make the ad sales translate on digital versus on uh, paper on dead tree. And uh, that's hard to do because the economics are totally different. I bring this up only to say I was I was having some real, uh, real flashbacks to my previous uh, career a decade ago when I was reading about uh, one of the challenges with Netflix's uh, ad streaming strategy, which 
I would say maybe even goes for all of these services we've been talking about. Cause you and I have been talking up the idea of they're going to do ad tiers and they're going to make more money. The, the math is there. They like make more money per user. The ARPU of a, of a, of a ad level person is actually higher than the ARPU of somebody who doesn't see ads, but is paying more money, which is why they're raising all the rates for the ad free version, because you got to get those things in sync. Otherwise it doesn't make sense. Um, so I say all this as run up to say, you know, Julia, the one challenge there is you got to sell the ads and you got to sell them for a rate you're happy with. And that we we have not talked about this aspect of it. But the truth is, as all these services get into this business and as a lot of users end up embracing the tier that's got ads in it, that increases the amount of inventory required to be sold and you know television video advertising isn't fundamentally infinite <laughs> which means no. which, which leads to what you wrote about netflix which is the advertising reality check which is uh, I know Netflix is new to the ad selling game, but I think this is a broader issue and it takes us back to, it feels like old school TV, right? Which is ad sales. It ends up being how you make your money and it's not easy. The money doesn't just roll in. <laughs> you have to actually have clients and you have to build a business and you have to have a system and you have to sell the ads and there has to be money in, you know, in marketing and it's there, but, but you don't, it doesn't just come to you. And and I hadn't really thought about it. I was taking all the streamers word for it. Like, Oh boy, this ad tier, it's going to be really, really good. But the, in the end you do have to sell the ads. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the thing with Netflix. I've been thinking about this a lot with the advertising tier. When Netflix went out to advertisers and charged $65 CPM, which by the way, was about two times more than what you were getting uh, for like Hulu. That's what Hulu was saying about $30. Um, depending on what network, it was 3x what you were kind of getting on some of the PTV networks, depending on the network. And so it was really, really expensive. But advertisers were flocking to it because they wanted to be on Netflix. Big difference between I want to be on Netflix and I want to reach people on Netflix that have an ad tier. You've got about 5 5.65, 5.75% of the domestic, uh, I think it's domestic, I don't think it's global, the domestic Netflix subscriber base now have ads. That's not terrible from what they were last year, but it's also not great. And so if you're an advertiser, sure, you're saying I'm going to pay $65 you know, CPM rate, but who actually am I reaching? I'm not reaching the core Netflix audience. I'm reaching a fraction of the Netflix audience. And therefore, what is my reach and what is the impact on this, on the audience that I'm seeing? So now you have Netflix kind of massaging with advertisers how they're approaching this, right? So um, this week is Ad Week in New York and Netflix's VP of Global Ad Sales was out there and he was saying, you know, we are selling uh, sponsorships of shows. So I think it was Lay's Fritos, Fritos Lay's um, was now going to be the sponsor of the next season of Love is Blind. So it's like, Love is Blind is presented by, you know, same with their upcoming live golf match. You also have um, the idea to do, which I think is hilarious because I love this idea because it's just so funny. But, you know, the idea of you can have a sponsor come in and say, we're going to on the ad supported tier. If you watch three episodes in a row, you're in that binge mode. Um, we're actually going to give you the next episode for free. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, ad free. Um, and you don't, you just have to sit through this, you know, kind of presented to you by advertisement. And so there's this idea of like, 
instead of just saying we want to reach the Netflix audience, it's saying we want to reach the audience of specific series on Netflix where we mm-hmm. think there's going to be really high impact, like Love is Blind, which was the uh, eighth or ninth most watched streaming original title in 2022, according to Nielsen. Um, so there, there's opportunity for Netflix to kind of say, hey, we understand that you are worried about reach and impact and we're trying to work with you on it. But the other idea of this is – you know, there have been all these reports. There was a great one um, out of uh, the information that was like, it's just not growing at the rate Netflix needs it to grow. And the fact that they're partnering with Microsoft means that Netflix also isn't getting all the information that they would like, nor are their uh, ad partners, because a lot of it goes through Microsoft versus, you know, a lot of people say Disney built their ad business, they bought BAM Tech, right? And then they built the ad tech on top of it. So mm-hmm. yes, there's there's an aspect of it. But they kind of control that end-to-end customer experience from a retail perspective. And so I think with Netflix, there's this question that there was no doubt Netflix had to go out with ads. They worked with Microsoft in a way to, in, in an effort to get it into the market within six to eight months, which was, you know, unprecedented at uh, the speed that they went out with it. But there is some of this lack of adoption and concerns over the um, owned and operated experience and that retail customer relationship. And so I think if you're Netflix and this ad tier is very important to you, look, all signs are really positive. Like all signs are showing that the ad tier will be successful for Netflix in the long run. But yeah, I mean, you're going against a cultural shift where you said there were no ads, you trained a cord never audience to not want ads. And now you're trying to bring people to ads. I think there's still the idea of our advertisers, would they rather spend to be on sports? Um, you know, there's an argument that Netflix should bring sports because even at the high level of cost, um, there might not be a too expensive customer acquisition cost on top of the cost of the rights because the amount of ads that they can put onto the platform and the amount of subscribers they would probably bring in. And so there's, you know, there's questions about how could sports, which are really high scale, um, high volume, active live viewers play for a Netflix, but then they have to build the technology for that. And that's another expense. And so it's, it's, it, all the signs point up, but I think for the time being, the experiment is very much still an experiment mode and, um, we'll see what happens, but it's, it's, it's a fun game to play out with Netflix. And the other thing I will say that's been really fun to think about, um, is, the different approach that all these streamers are taking right. with advertising. So Netflix has an opt-in, um, Disney and Amazon are opt-out. And so what that means is if you are a Netflix subscriber, you're paying, let's say, $15.49, you're on the standard tier, you would have to opt into the ad-supported package that's a little bit cheaper. You'd have to change your package um, for your plan. If you are a Disney Plus or Amazon Prime video, or I guess Amazon Prime subscriber, um, if you do not upgrade to the ad free, you will then uh, be opted into the ad supported. And what's really interesting about those two strategies is that one, which is Netflix, speaks to the scalability of of the ad supported. So it's not that they need to better monetize their current base, is that they want to give um, those who are not interested in Netflix at those current rates, the ability to come in at a cheaper rate and continue scaling while producing really strong monetization on those customers. But if you look at Disney and Amazon, what they're saying is we need to better monetize our core base. Like we really need to focus on if we are fe- facing stagnation with our subscribers within these these two services, you know, these video services, how do we better monetize those consumers and then draw stronger average revenue per user on the ones who then upgrade for three, four, five dollars, whatever ends up being um, into this ad free tier. And so just thinking about how these companies are kind of approaching the advertising tier and how they're thinking about 
the best way to monetize the consumers and, and scale those consumers while figuring out how to kind of go from being in the red to in the black is a really fun thing to think about. As more of these start to come into play um, and you're listening to downstream, you can start to read how some of the messaging and some of the pricing plan and pricing power is going about uh, based on how they are deciding whether it's an opt-in or an opt-out. Yeah, if you think about it that way, it's fascinating. I did notice on Netflix that if you click, if you're at that mid, at the mid tier, the ad free tier, and you click change my, um, change my subscription, it doesn't show you what subscription you're on and say you can go up or down. It changes to a page where the button's already selected to go down to the ad tier. And I thought yes. that was an interesting approach of you can see where they want you to go. Um, and they're not going to be like, well, you know, you could give us more money or less money. You, you decide It's like, no, no, no. If you're going to go from here, you're going to go down there and we're okay with that. But that's different than saying, we're going to keep your rate the same, but you're going to see ads now or pay us to not see the ads. And it's a different approach. And, and that's the, yeah, prime video is going to do that where you basically don't like these ads, pay us another $3 a month to take them out. I just, yeah, it's, it's an industry in transition. Um, when I talk about, uh, ad sales in the past, I mean, this, this is just part of it is that in, in the long run, the transition is to a world where you are at least, uh, to a certain degree, reliant on the vagaries of the ad market and that's you know we're not there yet because they're still ramping up but in the end it's not a it's not a guarantee which is sort of my point is that is that in the end you have to make the sales you have to have a good ad sales organization you have to go have a good ad tech organization that's actually a place that even though ads aren't in their blood that netflix i think is going to do well is because netflix strikes me as being a, a company that is very good with data and uh, data can be very helpful in ad sales because if you can demographically slice in a whole bunch of different ways, you know every bit about all the behavior. And Netflix certainly does. Uh, they're probably, uh, last I heard, the best in the business at this. Um, that can make for valuable slicing in terms of getting um, reaching uh, the most important audience that people will pay the highest ad rates for the highest CPMs. Absolutely. But, but it, it's a different game and and it can't be taken for granted. Right now, in the early days, we were very much in the, hey, look at the money that comes in when you have ads and you charge people. This is pretty good. This is pretty sweet. Uh, it's true. But in the end, you will have transitioned to a model where you will be affected by the ad market. And it's not a guarantee Right. Like you will have to work and there will be slowdowns that will hurt because that's what it's like being in an ad supported business. It's just different from the business you were in. It's not, you know, it it can still be incredibly profitable. It's just different. So it's going to be a different way to judge how these services do. And honestly, the programs they bring in, uh, I mean, the judgment for what sells well to advertisers is different than I, or at least I don't want to say is could be different than the judgment about what content brings in new subscribers, which could be different from the content that reduces churn. And you and I have talked about those two kinds of content for a while, but there is now a third thing, which is, do you fund a program that you look at and say, this is not as going to be as effective on our ad tier. And like that is going to change how you potentially what shows and movies you pay for if you're Netflix or anybody else. Exactly. It's going to be interesting. I think that's why we have a podcast because we think it's interesting. I would hope. 
So um, you wrote another piece that I want to at least touch on since we're talking a lot about Netflix in this episode. Um, the lessons for the Max era. I, I, I love this just because it just remember there was that moment where it's like, oh, everybody's coming for Netflix. All the knives are out for Netflix. This is going to be it. Like everybody else is going to be there. And then we the dust clears and guess where we are? Netflix still what we're talking I, about. I also <laughs> I usually don't don't love my pieces. Um, and I well that's not to say that I ho- I hope others do, but I, I'm you know as someone who writes, you never love your pieces. But um, I I like this one because it came from and I'll get into it. I was looking at all the Netflix news and I was like, wow, Suits is doing really well, and now they're looking at acquiring. And I was like, wow, what a great moment for 2014. Like like isn't this so exciting that Netflix is back to 2014? And I started talking to clients. I started talking to prospective clients. I started talking to friends in the industry. And I had the same question for all of them. I said, do you worry about the fact that in order to license content, in order to generate revenue that you need, even on a non-exclusive basis, and Netflix being the key buyer, that you position Netflix to increase their prices on a regular basis and still have the same level of fulfillment for those subscribers, plus the subscribers coming for their favorite show, so that way they mitigate churn. And they get to pull some of those subscribers. And it's a really difficult question because as I outlined the piece, the KPIs for the distribution team is like money. It is how much can we get for a show? How much can we get for, you know, How I Met Your Mother or whatever. That's the one show not on Netflix. But like how much can we get for the show? And for Netflix, as I've said on this podcast before, if you have it for three months, six months, it doesn't matter. Like there's a feeling of freshness. There's a feeling of it's someone's favorite show. There's a feeling of these are titles that people are hyper aware of and that they're seeing on TikTok and they want to participate in on top of the original content that uh, that are, generate those, you know, um, had those those headline grabbing numbers, I guess, I guess suits here. But like this isn't particularly new. Like they've saved shows like Manifest and Lucifer and those have done really well for Netflix. Yeah. But the fact that we're now saying like, Hey, we should just license content back to Netflix because we can license some of the, some of the other players, but they're licensing their shows and we're all figuring this out and like nothing is off the table. I think it puts Netflix in the original position that the other executives of these companies did not learn from the first time around, which was Netflix was not the most successful streaming platform because solely because of its original content. It was the most successful streaming platform because it had most of everything of what most people wanted. You could go, you could watch Friends, you could watch The Office, you could watch uh, The Big Short, you could it had just enough and it was relatively cheap for what you were getting. Even with the price increases, if Netflix continues to kind of pursue this original content, pursue some sports content that we're seeing them do, um include gaming in the mobile app. And on top of that, you now have some of these licensed series that are really popular that people love. It's no longer, well, just Netflix has it, but so do we. It doesn't matter. Netflix is the core utility. Netflix is the app that they're opening. And now that pla- that, that show, which was keeping them on your platform, or was one of the shows keeping them on your platform, is now available on Netflix. I had a line in a, a column months ago um, that I think about with a lot of Netflix stuff. And I said, it is much easier for Netflix to license a suits than it is for NBC universal to make a stranger things. And so the idea with a lot of the licensing yeah. is that we will license out this content in order to get to a place of, you know, break even hopefully profitability and then invest in additional content. But in the time that it takes to invest in, in original content that you hope is a differentiator, you hope it's different is a differentiator. Netflix goes, yeah, well, we your actual differentiator is your library, and we don't have that, and we will license some of that out. Think about the amount of original content Netflix has created over the last 10 years. 
how much of it is standout worthy? How much of it is stuff that we're still talking about both on the TV and film level? The vast minority of it. Yeah. It is the same for a lot of these other companies who have the advantage of having 60, 70 years of catalog. And so they can say, oh, we have, you know, Three's Company for ABC. Also, we have The Good Doctor. And then there's this new Hulu show. And so they can go, we have this. And we can license out some of it. We don't need to hoard it. I agree. I agree they should not hoard it. And especially on a non-exclusive basis. But if they're all licensing to Netflix, it makes Netflix the go-to utility as it still is for a lot of people. That delta between subscribers in the United States and Canada and active engagement on those platforms like HBO Max, like Disney Plus, you can just look at the Nielsen gauge every month, compared to Netflix is huge. And so if you're just going to widen that gap in the short-term dope for long-term success, I think you're setting yourself up for long-term failure, but it doesn't matter because these short-term priorities are you need that injection of cash flow because the debt low, the debt, the 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 debt that you're carrying, the right. leverage that is on your company is way too high to not have. And so it's this really tricky game. Like it's not an easy solution. I'm not here being like, I have figured it out. It's not easy. It's a very difficult, very difficult game to play. But I think part of those KPIs need to be an understanding of like if we give everything to Netflix as they increase their prices and they have reduced their churn, when we then increase our prices because we need to, what are we offering? If it's not exclusive library content that's available on Netflix, that doesn't really matter. If it's an original HBO show that people love once a year, that doesn't really matter. And so you have some sports fans, but as the rest of them kind of get into sports or figure that out, what's stopping somebody from going to YouTube TV where that it's also available on linear, it's only $70 and then they just need Netflix. And so there's this game that I play, right? I call it platform chess. And it is this idea of as we strengthen Netflix back to what it was in 2014, we further their use as a utility. We further their ability to sell ads on some of these series. We further the um it's it's its scale and its ability to then grow globally and invest in more original content in local languages because they want to be a predominant player in all these other countries and by the time we get to 2033 are we just going to be saying well it's like we're netflix 2023 again right like as we get to that moment it's like what does this look like long term and how can we figure out how to support ourselves short term again i don't know the answer other people at other companies are trying to figure out that answer, but it is it is something to consider, and especially as Netflix now looks into immersive experiences, games, sports, as they start to think about other ways to monetize that audience and create more premium experiences to increase the value perception, like we talked about with Disney Plus and the value perception, to increase that value perception as those costs continue to rise while the advertising supported costs remain low. It puts them in a decent position, which is a first mover advantage, but also a smart advantage of we're going to take advantage where we can. We're going to increase our licensing content spend because we think this is going to really um, help during this peak disruption period at a point where long term this sets us up for more success to continue investing in 50, 60 percent, 70 percent original content. Um, so it's 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 a hard game, but I think Netflix short term and long term is set up for a very strong success. Yeah, it feels like they're going to be there regardless. And you're right. It's not a zero sum game, but there is that aspect, which is in order to make it today and grow so you can end up where Netflix is going is right now, you know, you end up partially paying Netflix to stay ahead of you, right? It's like every dollar I spend, I'm, I'm giving or every dollar I make, I'm also letting Netflix move forward. And so, you know, maybe I, I get a little closer to them, but I don't get fully closer to them because I'm helping my competitor while I'm also helping myself. It's a, it's a conundrum. And, um, you know, I, I don't think 
no nobody is unassailable but i think this uh, fundamentally i mean netflix's first mover advantage of building a system and building it worldwide and establishing themselves and we i mean i think we all said this back in the day where every single company decided every single studio decided they were going to be try to be netflix is netflix didn't make itself in a day it took a long time yeah. and yeah. it's going to take a long time for anybody to, I'm not even catch up with Netflix, like get close to Netflix worldwide. It's going to be really hard, uh, not impossible, yeah. but real hard. Um, before we go, I got a couple of letters I want to read, but first I just have one story that I want to mention because I find it hilarious. It's a story in the Hollywood reporter, obviously fed by executives at Disney. Um, essentially the message here is uh, Marvel and uh, Star Wars, but especially Marvel, have uh, have have analyzed how they've made uh, their Disney Plus TV shows, which have been made using the magical system that Marvel movies make, where they kind of shoot. They they have a writer, and then they hand it to a director, and then they shoot everything, and then they look at what they've shot and decide what they don't like, and then they reshoot it, and then they end up with a thing. Um, and it turns out that maybe that's not the best way to make TV. So the at the conclusion of this whole story about how they're going to they're going to change showrunners for the Daredevil show and they're going to reshoot a bunch of stuff, but they're going to not reshoot everything. They're going to keep some of it and all of that. The final conclusion is essentially Marvel Studios has realized that uh, you probably need to make TV like TV and not like a like a really big Marvel movie. And I, uh, I coming back to my old job, this is that thing where a new person comes in and they say, we're going to do things totally different. And you give them lots of reasons why that doesn't make sense. And they say, no, 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 we're going to do it. And you're like, all right, I'm going to just set an alarm for six months. And you're going to come back to me and say, oh, that's why you do it that way. And it's like, yeah, that's why we do it that way. Marvel has finally, you know, all their box office success, all the wild success of Marvel movies. They finally reached the point where like, oh, that's why they make TV in this totally different way. We should do that too. And so, you know, did Marvel used to have a TV? TV group, but it was worked for like Perlmutter and there's lots of politics there and all that. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to do this and we're going to do it our way. And now they finally reached the point where they're like, oh, our way is not the right way to do this. Let's make TV like TV. I just, it's hilarious, obviously planted, but yet at the same time, I think does not reflect particularly well on how they've gotten to this point, but it, at least it's them saying, but trust us, we've changed. We've changed. This explains why Secret Invasion was so bad, right? <laughs> We're sorry. <laughs> We're going to fix it. It's it's just, it always makes my day when, like echoing what you just said, it always makes my day when people are like, oh, I have figured out a better way to do something. <laughs> and then it's like, it turns out the old way was, and it's just the expression I think of every time something like this happens is, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's worked. And I think the issue... With this, and I think it speaks to some of the creative stuff with Disney and, and the structure of Disney, is like Kevin Feige, super brilliant guy, like like one in a generational talent. Um, that said, very smart movie guy, very smart franchise builder. Television and film are two separate art forms. They are two separate things. They they are two different experiences. They require two different knowledge bases to really pursue. And I think this idea of I I'm, I'm raising my hand. I'm hoping some other downstream listeners are, are raising their hand when I say this. The amount of Star Wars and Marvel shows that I've watched, where I'm like, man, I wish that was either a two hour movie mm -hmm. or a twenty episode show, a proper TV the show. The latest, yeah. like the latest being Ahsoka, where I was like. This was 
building up to something and then it ended. And I kind of wish they either did a two hour movie that had more lightsaber battles or was 10, 15 more episodes of Thrawn, like, and, and building up to what that was supposed to be. Instead, they're kind of like, what if we did a miniseries, but it was just kind of like a movie, which is not what a miniseries <laughs> is. And so it's, it's the part of the issue is like, what are we doing here, guys? We need to move from the movie team into the TV team. Like, you really go and find it's, someone who can run a TV it's business. It's a different medium. It's a it's different, a different medium. medium. It's a different medium. It requires different things. And, and like, I understand that this is part of the problem that has happened over the last five years because studios and networks have done this. And now we as consumers kind of demand it. And we complain when we notice that this isn't the case. But, like, you don't need to spend a ton of money on these shows. And I'm not I'm not saying that we wouldn't call it out. I know we would. But you know what shows are really popular that cost a fraction of these? The Flash on the CW. Right. Supergirl. And, like, they, they were like, we're not going to spend $100 million well, a season on this. Not uh, One way you can spend money and still have good effects and stuff is by – producing it like tv where you don't shoot the whole thing and then after it's sh and this is a marvel thing this goes for the vfx too this is how they've done it i i would argue that it's not the secret to their success and in fact is one of the ways where they just waste money but it's yep. the idea that you you shoot it and then decide if you like it and then throw it away and do reshoots until you get it right. Like, yeah. yes, I appreciate that if you see something that isn't working, you should fix it and spend money to fix it. But it feels like they learned the wrong lesson, which is let's not worry about whether it's good as much because we'll fix it later. And when you could actually add a little more discipline into making sure it's right before it goes in front of the camera so you don't have to do reshoots later. So you don't have to reconfigure all your VFX later because you've had a brainwave late in production and you need to spend a huge amount of money on it. Well, that's one way to save on TV is to do it all up front. It's actually one of the ways they talk about the volume, you know, shooting in those those LED wall spaces now. One of the great things about uh, TV shows and movies using those is that the the video, uh, the VFX stuff has to be decided in advance <laughs> instead of shooting in front of a blue screen and saying, we'll figure it out later. And it like enforces some discipline on the production process and the directors that wasn't there before. And it's just like, I think Marvel bought a little bit too much into their own hype about their system when in fact some of it was them just being not, I don't want to say lazy, I want to say not as diligent up front as maybe they could have been not as disciplined as maybe they could have been and if you're a tv show working on a tv show budget you can't afford to not be disciplined up front so yeah yeah so um they learned they learned i should also say because i know somebody's going to think this look being a disruptor yes there are points when people roll into something and say we, we're going to do this a different way and it's going to be better and that's fine you should listen to what the people who are in it say to you but i understand that sometimes what they're doing is projecting uh, an inefficient system that deserves to be disrupted but i'll tell you uh, more often than not all those things happen for a reason and you're going to learn them the hard way and that seems to be what happened with marvel yeah. Oh, well, maybe they'll figure it out now. Maybe they'll learn actual actual TV shows that one of the revelations was, oh, what if instead of making everything like a miniseries that was clearly part of a movie script that turned into a miniseries? What if we invest in uh, a staff and, and a cast and and then we tell a story and then we we do another season of it, which they've only Daredevil and Loki are like uh, Daredevil was going to be two seasons shot at once. Loki is the first Marvel show to have two seasons. It's like, mm -hmm. hey, you know what's good on television? Seasons where you you get a show that's successful and it comes back again. Even Star Wars learned that lesson with Mandalorian, right? Like bring it back. And Marvel was just not even tuned into that. It's unreal. 
Unreal. Yeah. All right. Uh, before we go, uh, a few quick letters. Ronzo wrote in for Sports Corner. So it's Sports Corner inside letters here. Sports Hell yeah. Corner. Um, Monumental is a regional sports network in Washington, D.C. This is a, a former uh, RSN that was, oh, what was it previously? It was NBC Sports Washington. But now it's Monumental, owned by the conglomerate that owns the NHL, NBA, WNBA, and esports franchises in D.C., as well as its main arena. It is the uh, Ted Leonsis, the early AOL exec. Ronso says this RSN emerged after the latest uh, NBC RSN created last year. Soon, I'm, I mean, I may not even need YouTube TV if only there was a good local news streamer. I will say to Ronzo, I think Paramount Plus will give you your local CBS affiliate um, yeah. and CBS News. So you might you may have some some options there. Uh, so you might want to look into that. And Peacock will probably give you your local NBC affiliate. So you may have some choices. But the RSN. So in this case, what happened is a version of what we said before, which is basically the team's. I think Denver is like this too. The teams bought the RSN and now they are able to do, because it's no longer a keep people on cable ploy, they can do the RSN as well as do a, an over the top subscription for people who don't have cable. Interesting. I think also too, local is going to get very interesting. Yeah. I, I, based (laughs) on someone who's have, I'm trying to think of like, based on, I've had a lot of conversations with people and um what is happening within not just the RSNs, but the idea of local in general, who local becomes important to, who feels like local is less important. A lot of it is shifting. Uh, and mm. I, I think there's some really excellent potential opportunities for all fans um, coming out of the equation. But for now, to Jason's point, there's like always some form of accessible access somewhere if it's available through broadcast um as long as it's not like a rsn where you are deeply tied to a pay tv bundle um so always seek it out um but the the future of local is like one of my great obsessions and and so it's it's very fun to think yeah and and we definitely see with these uh local tv and sports alliances the idea that like i think it's the phoenix suns are going to have all their games over the top but also on a local broadcast channel which will go into the local cable packages and with local tv you know as linear changes the economics of that local station which is you know legally in the u.s must be carried essentially by uh, cable. Um, there are some, yeah, it's all real interesting, right? That a, a hyper local kind of kind of product that you could create or roll it into something else in case of the uh, mostly owned and operated stations. We'll keep an eye on it. Um, okay. Next letter is from David who writes, my read is the new writers guild deal makes it easier for writers to reach that hit show threshold on smaller streaming services rather than larger ones. Is that your expectation as well? It seems like yet another reason to expect more consolidation in the future to make it easier for services to avoid hitting the 20% threshold. Oh, ah, David. Technically, no, technically because it's it's still the percentage share. So if the vast majority of that platform was watching a certain type of show and your show fell into that type of show and therefore you hit that threshold, then it wouldn't really matter on the number of subscribers. Like like even if you went down to two people, if 50% of those people only watched comedies and 50% of those people only watched dramas and you were to get to like 70%, it's still really difficult to get even if it's with two. 
Um, I what I think is much more integral or not integral, excuse me, what's much more important to this conversation is creating benchmarks for that reason of like the value of who's watching. Uh, so just as an example, the, the expression I keep using when I talk to people about this is if you had a hundred million people watch, right? And they wouldn't break it out like that. They would take like a hundred million hours. But if you had a hundred million people watch, if 90 million of those viewers were new customers to Netflix, huge, that's a massive, massive, massive success for Netflix. If 90 uh, million of those customers were highly engaged Netflix fans who weren't really at risk of canceling, that's less important. Mm. Uh, like it's, it, those are customers that are not less valuable to an extent, but also yes, like less valuable. And so, um, also, how does that hundred million perform within that genre compared to other high value genres, low value genres? What is the cost of that show compared to cost of within those same benchmark series? So the issue is that information without context is just numbers, and so there's still a lack of context being provided within these numbers. But it's it's a, it's a good first step. Um, but I, I've been thinking about this too, and I was like, oh, I wonder if it's easier there for like Peacock or Apple TV Plus to get there. Um, no, I think it's it's a share. Like it's it's still. You still have to reach a certain level of viewership on that platform and, and what they're watching. Now, you had a platform like Apple TV Plus, where 70% of those customers are watching everything on Apple TV Plus. Like, they're all of them are watching stuff, which we know for a fact is not happening, because then we would see a lot more of those shows in Nielsen's top right. 10. Um, you could argue, yeah, that's probably great for a new show, but it's, it's really not playing out that way. And so I think it is... Um, arguably maybe a little bit easier on netflix because there's just more activity happening on it and there is a trained cultural behavior of looking for new content all the time um but i, I think if you're looking at pure numbers like pure subs to viewership share percentage um it's about the same would be my guess uh as, as i'm thinking about this yeah, I think that uh, the one place where the WGA, first off, I don't think anybody's going to consolidate their corporation just to stick it to the writers by one little thing that's in this current deal. But I would say a service that's got a very diverse viewership with lots of different content is probably less likely to hit the threshold just because they've built up a a, a wide range and then you'd need something that cr crosses across all those barriers. Whereas if you have a more homogenous service, it's more likely that a show is going to break across all those barriers and get to the 20% threshold. But even so, I don't know. It's just going to bring out the hits. In the end, it's going to be the hits that are going to get this bonus. And that, that was the purpose of it. Nothing but the hits. Just the also, hits. Nonstop bangers. Like, also, like that's how television has always been. Yep. So No, oh no. Yeah. It's, it's all those old lessons of television brought back to us, really. At this point. Okay, last letter is from Francis, who uh, this is hilarious. It says, Hi, Julia plus Jason. I'm reading former Nike CMO Greg Hoffman's book, Emotion by Design. I thought you might enjoy this part. We focused on the plus symbol and experimented with scale, proximity, height, detailing, and so on. We couldn't have known it then, but we had just begun a trend in digital branding that continues to this day with brands from Disney to Walmart adding plus symbols to represent their digital membership services. Well, we were the first. So take that, Nike, Nike plus. All right. Also, a fair bit about Steve Jobs in that chapter because there was a deal with Apple. Uh, thank you to uh, listener plus Francis for that plus detail. We love honestly, the plus it's amazing. Here. I didn't even we, know that this book existed. So thank you for that recommendation. Yeah, we love the plus here at Downstream and Downstream Plus, of course. If you've got a question for us, a letter to write, we love to hear from you. Go to downstreamfeedback.com. Love to your mothers. Send in your area code if you like. Uh, you don't have to if you don't want to. And 
Of course, if you haven't yet, please consider subscribing to our very own Plus, Downstream Plus. This was a full-sized episode for everybody, but the only way to hear the complete version of our next episode is to subscribe. Go to downstream.plus to subscribe and support the show. You can find Director of Strategy Julia at parrotanalytics.com and at puck.news. You can find me at sixcolors.com. I appear on many other podcasts at RelayFM and theincomparable.com. And until next time, Julia, say goodbye. Bye-bye, friends. Bye, everybody.